the difficulty, the main difficulty was complete despondency and defeatism and lack of enthusiasm for any effort amongst the supporters of the Republican movement of the country. Uh, now, this changed, and changed very quickly after the formation of Fianafal. Uh, and uh, indeed, one of the most remarkable things that period was the speed with which the Fianafal organization came into existence from nothing into a nationwide organization. Uh, this was partly an effort of organization, but it was mainly attributable to the revival of spirit which Mr. Devereux brought about. Exit the great pragmatist. The great primate of pragmatical politics is gone. Those were some of the newspaper headlines that appeared when Sean Lamass announced his retirement as Taoiseach in November 1966. A pragmatist he certainly was, the no-nonsense practical man who became the architect of Irish Industrial Revival, the man who as Minister of Supplies saw us reasonably well fed through the Second World War and as Minister for Industry and Commerce was the father and begetter of nearly all our state-sponsored bodies. As a politician, he was the complete professional, dedicated, energetic and tireless. Coming from a Dublin nationalist family, he devoted himself to the service of his country from the time he joined the Irish Volunteers in 1915, and it was in that same year that he met for the first time Eamon de Valera. He was a strange-looking character. I've said this before. He wore uh, knickerbocker trousers and a tweed hat. With his enormous height and exceptional thinness, he looked quite a, an unusual character. Uh, and my first impression of him was one of surprise at his un- unconventional appearance. But of course, it's when he began to speak to us, his extraordinary personality began to take over, and I began to realise that we had here a very exceptional person. Sean Lamass was born in Dublin on the 15th of July, 1899 into a family that had been associated with the city for generations. He began his political career, one might say, in the York Street Club, where so many people in the national movement used to meet. John McCann, former Lord Mayor of Dublin, and his running mate in one of the South City constituencies in many elections, remembers him in those early days. He was very thin, very handsome, uh, not as handsome as, as his brother Noel, who was was one of the people who was a victim of the Civil War, found on the roadside. But uh, uh, he was very, very lively. When I met him in 26, and when I became rather intimate with him in 1927, he used to wear riding breeches, and he skipped around. He wore a... in in the wintertime... belted coat and uh, he had a cap, peak cap and the cap at a, a rather, we'd say, a rakish angle. But he always carried a, a Nash plant with uh, a right angled ha- handle, if you know what I mean, uh, tucked under the arm. Indeed, many a time I saw him going down George Street, I think he was going to meet Kathleen Hughes at that time. That was his wife. Oh, there was no harder worker than Sean Lamass. Uh, in my opinion, I, I never met a harder worker in politics. <clears throat> he was, to, to use that hackney, that horrible word perhaps, uh, dedicated. It, it, it was outside of his, his wife and home. Uh, it was his whole life to see this programme that he had visualised and uh, uh, put into effect eventually. And every nerve was strained 
with that with that in view. He was a rather the man that wouldn't talk a lot to you. He was all business, if you know. I mean, that's that's an expression which it conveys a whole lot. Yes. He was all business. Was he impatient with people who weren't as industrious as himself or as efficient wouldn't. as himself? No, I wouldn't say he was impatient. Not for a moment. I've seen him in... I was on the national executive in Abfi in Ophala in 1927. I represented the city constituency. And the one thing I always... The first thing I observed about him was that he could sit and listen and listen for a long, long time. He was very young, of course, and there were older men talking. But he'd smoke the pipe, and eventually then, at the end of it all, he'd rise, and he'd probably say, yes, well, in my opinion, this is what we've got to do. Mm. Could there be a touch of ruthlessness about him, though? I wouldn't say he was, wouldn't say he was ruthless, but he hadn't very much time for, for, for people who'd be complaining. I mean, there was a job to be got on with, he didn't put his arm round your shoulder and say, would you ever go and do this? He'd say, uh, that's what you've got to do, go and do it. You see? Uh, that was my... He was... Uh, I always considered that he brought uh, military methods into politics. Uh, rather kindly military methods, if you like, but he had everything... Everything was, was, was in the nature of a disciplinary task, which had to be done and not to be complained about. The late Robert Briscoe is another politician who knew Sean Lemass in the 1920s. Well, my earliest recollections, of course, were shortly before and during the Civil War. Uh, I had very little to do with him. As I've always said, while we were very good friends and very close, he was a very reticent kind of an individual. Some days he would talk and some days he wouldn't. Uh, depending upon what was in his mind. Do you think he, he was a potential leader then? Well, we had one leader then, and uh, we didn't think in others as leaders. We were a team, and we regarded a man like Lamas as uh, an important person on the team. How about the changeover to uh, constitutional politics then? Uh, what part did Lamas play in that? What were his attitudes there? Oh, he had played a very important part. There were <coughs> numbers of what we called officers of the organization, uh, like Lamas, McEntee, uh, Jerry Boland, people like that. They played a very important part. Uh, every move was made after consultation with what was called the executive of the Fianafal party. Uh, you see, one must look at Lamas not as an individual of ambition for, him, for himself or for position, but you must look upon him as a man who felt that there was a certain line to be followed all the time. And they, they did so. Of course, one has to all the time remember that behind the scenes and in front of the, of the public, the spokesman and the man who was, if you like, who influenced decisions was uh, De Valera. What do you remember of Lamas during the time 
when he was touring the country. You were with him then. Oh, yes. You see, the organisation, when it was founded, had its head offices in Dublin, and it had to try and organise the whole country into falling in line with this new policy. And there were several men, spokesmen, who went around all over the country, but amongst them was Lamas, who was probably the most active, the most active in that sense. He was a secretary of, a, of the organisation. He was in charge of organisation, and he... No doubt about it, he tried to organise every village and of every hamlet, every town, into accepting this new policy. Well, in politics, he didn't start as a professional because at that time, in around 26, 27, 28, when I was director of publicity, he was working, still working, in his father's shop, which was a well-known gents' outfitters in Capel Street. And I remember vividly going to him and he at the end of the counter, the way they were doing something on the books, and I going down to, the, to him with some copy which I would have written, not a very very involved copy, but some, some simple slogans or handbills, that's the type of thing we used to use. And he'd, okay, he'd say, that's OK, Jack. And uh, then I'd go on from there down to Oscar Trainer, who worked uh, under with Mr Kingston. Mr Kingston owned the Fowler Press down in, in uh, Facing the Gate Theatre, Frederick Lane, I think they, they call it. And uh, at that time, as I say, he, he walked between the shop and headquarters. It, I don't know at what particular date, but it was sometime late in the 20s when they prevailed upon him then to come over as uh, a full-time, more or less, general secretary and uh, he was everything. Had he much influence, do you think, on De Valera and on particular questions like going into the Doyle, say, in 27? I think he would have been practical in that. That he, he wasn't the first. The first to say to say, "Come on and capture the doll," was a man who seceded from Fianna Fáil. When I say seceded, he well, he said that he thought this was the better way to do it. That that we'd never get anywhere after the civil war unless we went into the doll. And uh, he was he was right, of course. Uh, De Valera had to concede later that he was right. That man was Michael O'Malan. He was a very, very scholarly man, and he was head of the Irish Examining Institute for many years afterwards. What was Mr. Lamas like as a public speaker? You often well, were heard with him. I him speak the first time. I heard him speak in 1924. Uh, I think his first effort was at the corner of uh, Grantham Street, outside uh, the, the, the Michael Malone Sinn Féin Club had... Uh, the upper portion of the house, and many of us were members of the of the Sinn Féin club, of course, before we became Fianna Fáil. And it was then in 1924 that that when he, he was selected as the or he became a candidate for the by election, I heard him first, and he was very hesitant. He was a very hesitant young speaker, but he was an impressive speaker just the same, because he never lost. Uh, what some people consider to be a fault. He never lost the way of staccato expression. But if, if, he, were, if he could be considered, or is considered by, by, by some people, as too staccato, there's one thing about him anyway, 
there was never anything extraneous in what he was saying. He was to the point all the time. And he always knew the facts, I'd say. Oh, facts were, of course, his, his great, great uh, gambit, I'd say, because in, uh, when, when, we, when we were well on the way uh, to becoming a government, say, in 1931 and 32, uh, he had a sort of a litany which he used used from the platforms. Uh, it was claimed that under the previous administration there were uh, some 120 or 117, I think it was, factories and workshops and that sort of thing closed down. And he would have an accurate uh, jotting of uh, the number of factories that existed making certain types of articles ten years ago and uh, the number that existed now. And he'd go each night, he'd have the hall, it was a sort of a, a litany that he'd say, ten years ago there were so many uh, sawmills in Ireland, today there are so many. And it was the most impressive sort of thing because he could relate it uh, locally. We went, at that time we might have do, do three, four or maybe five meetings a night there were the old street corner meetings and before we, we used the microphone. I don't think we were using microphones in those early days at all. It was only later that we, we started. We weren't, actually, because I, I remember myself, I, my first efforts, I, I was very, very weak in the throat for, for weeks <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> One of Lamasse's great difficulties in this period, as Robert Briscoe remembered, was in persuading the intransigent wing of republicanism that the best way forward lay with the new Fianna Foyle departure. There was plenty of opposition from the old Sinn Féin movement particularly and he had to argue the reason we were going constitutional as distinct from physical force. <coughs> he was a good speaker and he had a great deal of logic in his approach, in his arguments and uh, he, he used to meet People, local people we call special uh, people in, in each area and talk with them. But uh, the main uh, influence he had was as a result of his speech-making. Lamasse's barrage of meetings, his organising ability, his persuasiveness and sincerity all helped to establish the Fianna Fáil party in the minds of the electorate as a potential alternative to the Commonwealth government. He, more than any other perhaps at common level, was the architect of Fianna Fáil, travelling through the countryside in his Model T Ford, sometimes on his bicycle, setting up the party which political scientists now accept as one of the most remarkable in Western Europe. But even after Fianna Fáil entered the Dáil, there remained the difficulty of convincing the Dublin establishment, civil servants, bishops, journalists, that they were a constitutional party. Oh, we had indeed. I don't know when we did succeed in doing that. Even after we became a government in 1932, there were a lot of people who thought that we were just a revolutionary party was going to upset and destroy everything. I should say that the understanding that we were a responsible party with realisable policies began to dawn in 1932 and 1933, and from that on was a very question. Do you think Mr. de Valera's success at Geneva in 1932 helped? Mr. de Valera's personality helped in all this. There's no question whatever that his uh, innate conservatism, because he is a conservative, uh, 
contribute a great deal to overcoming this impression of a wild, revolutionary, irresponsible party, uh, which our opponents have tried to, 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 our opponents have tried to give us. What were Fianna Fáil's um, ambitions then, immediate political aims in 1932, coming into oh, power? To get rid of the treaty, to get rid of the treaty, as this became possible. You see, the uh, original debate in the Republic of 1920s was whether it was possible to get the whole treaty position reversed and the authority of the second doll re-established and the government responsible for that doll made the authority of the country. It only took uh, after some time that it was understood this wasn't feasible and that the alternative policy of setting out intermediate objectives was adopted. The abolition of the oath, the abolition of other assets, fa factors of the treaty which were regarded as in conflict with national sovereignty and finally the the, the annulment of the free state constitution and the enactment of a new constitution by the people. Uh, it, it was understood that we were going to get rid of the treaty as opportunity offered and in this step-by-step -step way, and this was accomplished by the enactment of the constitution, constitution in 1937. Some people have criticised the 1937 constitution for its lack of realism towards towards the 32-county Ireland, that, that it, it claims the 32 counties and at the same time it talks about the special position of the church. There are many aspects of that constitution which can be, which can be criticised. Now, in the 30s, of course, the great aim was to get a constitution which we ourselves had drawn up, which had been discussed in the Dáil, and which would hold its authority solely because the people voted for it. Personally, I wasn't a great deal concerned what was in the constitution. I wanted to get rid of the free state constitution which had been dictated by Britain, Later, the last remnant of the treaty to have a constitution which which was our own production entirely, uh, and in preparing the, that document, we were many of us concerned with minimising the uh, field for attack on it, uh, and it was being criticised very strongly by opposition parties, mainly on party political grounds, but there was at least some element of doubt in our minds as to whether it could be acceptable, uh, could be carried in, in a referendum, and therefore. The aim was to frame the constitution in a way which would uh, not give scope for unjustified attacks, although there were a lot of unjustified attacks, uh, and uh, which would ensure its acceptance by the people generally. You had to pay attention to the fact that the electorate w w was in some sectors ultra-Catholic. I don't think we were given a great deal of thought to this, although uh, I, I, I wasn't personally deeply involved in the in the various discussions which led to the which preceded the framing of the document, I think our main concern was to avoid the possibility that an Irish constitution drafted by an Irish parliament related solely to Irish conditions might be rejected by the people, which would have been a thorough disaster. Meanwhile, the industrial revival under Le Mass as Minister for Industry and Commerce was set in train. Tariffs and quotas prepared the way for the full self-sufficiency policies of Sinn Féin. Factories were opened for such diverse products as cement and sugar, industrial alcohol and aluminium, boots and electric bulbs, razor blades and leather. Le Mans speeches now were mostly at the opening of a new factory or the establishment of a new industry. It appears to be inevitable that the new industrial activities which the establishment of Irish Steel Limited makes possible will be situated in this locality. It has long been a personal ambition of mine, an ambition fostered by the constant reminders of the 
public spirited representatives of this area to assist in the promotion of an industrial revival in this part of Ireland. Probably no other area has suffered more immediate and more serious loss by the changes brought about in the past 25 years than this part of County Cork. It could not have been thought that the industrial revival would be an easy matter or accomplished without great difficulty. Here we were, a small people with little or no industrial experience, whose older industries had been killed during the previous century by misgovernment and by the intense competition of the great industrial nations which are our immediate neighbors, whose figure had been sapped by the continuous emigration of its youth and whose capital resources were in large measure uh, controlled by persons in no sympathy with our national aspirations. In such circumstances, our progress had necessarily to be, to be slow. We were bound to suffer many reverses and difficulties were only to be expected. The one quality we needed to ensure our success was confidence, confidence in ourselves and in our policy. Lamas believed that the state had a duty to look after its less fortunate citizens, and he developed a social policy which was, in many instances, far in advance of its period. This brought opposition from some members of the hierarchy, and he was strongly criticised by the Commission on Vocational Organisation, of which Bishop Brown of Galway was chairman, for interfering too much with private enterprise. His answer was that his actions were dictated by the public interest. He introduced factory acts covering working conditions in every aspect, and a system of welfare benefits dealing with unemployment, sickness, holidays with pay, free beef, free milk and so on, which might have been associated in other countries with only the most advanced socialists. And yet Lamas, all through his career, avoided the word socialist as applicable at all to either himself or his policies. I mean, he had always, you see, what could at that time be construed as as socialism. He was thinking very much ahead of a whole lot of people who were merely thinking in in terms of the national entity and uh, what went with the national entity. He was thinking always more of the conditions for the people. Uh, He was a, a real Republican in that sense, that the welfare of the people and of all the people. And he didn't uh, leave out the, the bigger national question either. But intimately he, he realised, like Pierce did in my opinion, and Rooney and any of these people, that, uh, leaders, that you must base whatever fight you're going to make on that. That's uh, as much equality as equality of opportunity for the masses. Now that was that could be construed as his policy in quintessence, in my opinion. And of course he brought about a great number of changes in social life. What, for example, was Dublin like around 1932? Well, 32, I mean, in, in the 20s, we'd say, I remember it very clearly. And in, well, in 32, yes, things were very, very bad. But there was a, an extraordinary amount of, of, of unemployment and uh, 
mean, you didn't have to be told about it. People walking through the streets could see so many unfortunate children and indeed some grown-ups in, in their bare feet and very, very badly clad. And, well, now take the printing industry with which I was particularly associated. My father being a litographer and secretary, honorary secretary of the litographers. I mean, I heard constantly from down the years about the unemployment and the amount of material that was being imported into the country and what could be done if what Lamasse was stressing were done, mm. well, if, if tariffs were instituted. Uh, and how did he, in fact, go about remedying the position? By the tariff, the tariff policy, which he promised. It was no different from Arthur Griffith's policy. It might have been, it might have been uh, 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 Common and Gale's government's policy, ultimately. If Griffith had lived, I don't know, but that's the way I... I re- that, that was his, anyway. That was his policy, I mean, the tariff policy. And, uh, in brief... The establishment of factories. To strengthen the industrial arm with, and, and, and not neglect... The same as Griffith had preached, you see, the industrial and the agricultural arm, that one was complementary to the other. And, of course, he brought in a lot of social legislation, which, in fact, was in advance of uh, many other countries. I mean, take, for instance, the unemployment assistance. There was unemployment benefit, which you paid for uh, in, in, in up to 1932. But there was no... Uh, when, when you exhausted your benefit, and a man or woman exhausted their benefit of the labour exchange... There was no relief from anything but uh, the charitable agencies. Now, he brought in the unemployment assistance, and not alone for the city, but uh, it was extended, as we know, to the very small, I think it was the £5 valuation at that time. I, I, I'm not certain, I, I'm not agriculturally minded, but I think, anyway, it extended and still extends to the very small farmers who, when they're disemployed, uh, during the, the bad months, uh, go on to unemployment assistance. Well, that was the first great thing, in my opinion, that was done. And then well, he, he brought in emer- special emergency schemes and, and he extended the, the programme of works uh, under the Board of Works, that's called the Office of Public Works, you know. But one of the great things, of course, was one of the greater things, in my opinion, was uh, the Conditions of Employment Act. That was, of course, it didn't come until 1939 when it was, uh, he established a 48-hour week for adults and a 40-hour week for workers under 18. And then the way he, under that act there were restrictions placed on the employment of women and children and special regulations were laid down for night work and overtime. And for the first time ever, an annual holiday would pay for all workers was made compulsory. I think that was one of the greatest things that, that he ever did. And he was anxious at all times, at all times, I knew, to implement that as soon as possible. Some of his political opponents have said about Sean Lemesse that he wasn't a socialist by conviction, that he just did these things as a sort of stopgap measure. I don't agree with that at all, because uh, Lemesse was a Republican from the time he was a boy. He was in the post office as a fighter when he was only 17. And... uh, I don't know the difference between a Republican and a Socialist. Republicanism, to my mind, means socialism. And so far as I'm aware, Lamas had, from the very beginning, 
a considered programme of, of, of social advancement. And he really believed in it? Believed in it implicitly. And, and the, the, other, the other things, some of them if, uh, were, were, were secondary to that. He, he realised that it was important, most important, to give, well, a modicum of comfort, which they hadn't got at that time when he was on his way fighting, and the party, the Fianna Fáil party, were fighting, to give, to give a degree of comfort to, to, to workers, to which they were entitled. Now, take, for instance, the housing problem with which he made himself very conversant. Uh, at that, when he came to power, or the party came to power in 1932, uh, there were at least 150,000 people living in the, in the filthiest conditions, the awful tenement houses and, and, and hovels. And uh, in quick time, he saw to it that, and he, as he had promised the people from the platforms, uh, that the, working, the housing of the working classes act would be put into operation. And that was the first, and he, although Sean T. O'Kelly was the minister for local government, Lamas was the, was the, was the impelling, was, was, was the force. I think, too, he always got on well with trade unionists. Well, I, being a trade unionist myself, I was at one time a member of the electrical trade union, and I was a member of the journalists, and... Uh, but, uh, again, it, it was the printing industry which I, I knew most about on account of my father having been a litographer and that, but they always spoke in the highest terms. And not alone they, but... Uh, other unions, uh, other unions' representatives who negotiated with them or called upon him from time to time to discuss matters and problems, and he was always very... The door was open for that always. That was the great thing about Lamas, that he wanted these trade unions, these people who knew what the people's problems were. He wanted them to go in. And the late Senator Sean Campbell and Willie Whelan... They were secretary and treasurer, respectively, of the uh, the compositors, and they told me that the, the great thing about him was that he could meet their representatives and mostly without ever having a civil servant around, and he'd know their problems because they would have sent him a brief, but he'd know as every bit as much about what was uh, their their difficulties as they did themselves. And that was the grand thing about them, they said, that you could go in and talk as man to man to. Well, how did he get on with the civil servants? Well, again, I, I knew a number of, down the years, uh, of the civil servants who worked close to him. And uh, they had always the same thing to say about him, that he was a great man to work for. And they worked for him, that was the thing. Mm. Particularly during the war, when the stress was on, and he took on the, the the additional portfolio of supplies. They certainly, there's no question you may criticise, or people may criticise uh, the Department of Supplies, and a department of that kind would be criticised, or a department of industry, but they certainly, they gave him 100%, the civil servants. I have always admired that particular department of civil servants because they seem to have been imbued with his realism, mm. and that mm. the people were important. Yes, the people were important, and that, and that they were the first. That the people were, were should be their first consideration. Mm. And I've heard too that he ran the department as a business organisation, 
that people were given permission, people made decisions if decisions had to be made. Well, that was true. He, he, as far as I know, he had, he'd say himself, well, I'm a man in charge of that department and he might dispatch you and he, he, if you went in to talk to him, he'd say, he, whatever he tells you would be right. Mm-hmm. He allowed people to take responsibility and to do things. He instilled it. He instilled a sense of initiative. Yes. He wanted to see men, and that's there, the men that he got around him in that department, people mm-hmm. with initiative. The Lamass initiative was evident in the setting up of semi-state bodies like Bordnamona and Kolochuk Raeran. These had their justification when war broke out in 1939, and we were thrown back on our own resources for fuel and food alike. Lamass's foresight and capacity for working under difficulties were acknowledged on all sides when he managed to keep the nation fed as Minister of Supplies during the war years. So far as foodstuffs are concerned, supplies of all kinds within the country are abundant. We are, of course, ourselves producers and exporters of many kinds of foods. Meat and milk products, vegetables, bacon and poultry, are produced here in quantities far in excess of our own needs, and no scarcity of them can be anticipated. There are other foodstuffs of which our requirements are met in whole or in part by imports, of which the more important are wheat, sugar and tea. I am able to tell you that the stocks of these foodstuffs now accumulated within the country are adequate to secure our position even if the war should so develop that we should be cut off from all contact with the rest of the world for many months. The Mass's efforts to ensure that no one starved during the war were matched by his concern that no one should die of hunger in peacetime either. Whether he regarded himself as a socialist or not is perhaps not important. What is important is that, like Roosevelt and his New Deal in America, he had a social and economic policy which he genuinely believed in, and that that policy was intended to benefit, and did in fact benefit, the less privileged sections of the community. In his years as Taoiseach, when social services were more or less taken for granted, and the great problems were productivity, increasing exports, preparing for the European common market, Lamass was increasingly concerned with urging our industrialists to greater efforts. In an address to the Irish Management Institute in Killarney in 1961, after the breakdown of the free trade area negotiations, he said, Whether the move of Western Europe to a a comprehensive free trade regime is accelerated or further delayed, And whatever advantages a consolidation of control and rationalisation of production might offer in lower costs and increased efficiency in any circumstances, there are continuing problems of preserving and increasing export markets for Irish industrial products. Problems which must, in any case, receive close attention if the country's industrial expansion is to continue. 
there are, of course, many industrial undertakings which began operations very recently and mainly for export purposes, which have no particular marketing problems because they're linked with established concerns in other countries and are producing for markets already developed by their associates. We don't have to concern ourselves unduly with their future development, which may be presumed to be safe in the hands of their own managers. There are some industries, however, which are, which are not export, exporting nearly as much as they could, and where difficulties uh, in increasing sales abroad appear to derive not so much from lack of interest in export possibilities as from the diversity of their production and their problems of making uh, satisfactory marketing arrangements. Uh, there are some firms which are not exporting at all, although nowadays there's a, a strong compulsion on every firm, e even a firm whose main business is always likely to be in the home market, a strong compulsion to export uh, some part of its production in the, in the present climate of public opinion, which is disposed to classify as inefficient any firm which cannot show uh, some capacity to export. Uh, the firms which cannot or which aren't trying to achieve export sales are probably the the lame ducks of our industrial brood, and while every effort must be made to restore and to save them, some of them will almost certainly go under in the, in the deep waters of a more competitive situation. In an interview in 1964, Mr. Lamass was questioned about the Republic's economy as he saw it. Again, he emphasised the need to be competitive in increasingly free trade conditions. Yeah, ten years ago, we in Ireland had not yet adapted our thinking and our national development planning to the new circumstances of the post-war era. We were then in fairly serious economic difficulties and were certainly making inadequate progress with no fairly clear conception of how we were going to get the country's economy moving ahead at a reasonable pace. All that has changed. The change really began with our first programme for economic expansion published in 1958. The success of this programme has built up the confidence of our people in the future of their country and laid the foundations of our second programme, the plans and targets for which are now in process of being finalised. We have some special problems in Ireland, which are not present in other European countries, which have already realised a, a high level of industrialisation. We're still largely an agricultural country and developments in agricultural production methods and other factors are reducing agriculture's requirements of manpower. This has accentuated our emigration problem, and the answer lies in the intensification of industrial activity. This we're doing, and we expect that during the years until 1970, the growth of industry will absorb not only the surplus of manpower from agriculture, but also the natural growth of population to an extent that will greatly reduce our emigration, if not eliminate it altogether. 
The industries which are being set up are producing mainly for export markets. The most rapid expansion has been achieved in the engineering industries, in food processing and textiles. The food processing industries are, of course, fundamentally the most important because they draw their raw materials from Irish agriculture. Developments in this section have been partially initiated by private enterprise and partially by state investment through the Irish Sugar Company, which has been entrusted by the government with the task of pioneering development in this field. And what of the economy's future? Again, Mr. Lemass in 1964. The target set for the next decade assumed the possibility of maintaining much the same rate of economic growth as was set up under the first programme. This, of course, means that the actual expansion of output in each year must exceed that of the previous year. There are no reasons why we cannot be confident of maintaining this rate of growth. While no programme of this kind can be expected to work out exactly in accord with the estimates, uh, nothing has happened or is in sight which would require us to revise our estimates. Of course, Ireland is dependent on external trade in a very great degree, relatively much more so than Britain, so that our progress must presume the maintenance of a world climate which favours expansion of international trade. Unless something now unforeseen should emerge, however, I think that general world conditions will assist in the realisation of our aims. It has been said in criticism of Sean Lemass that in his anxiety to forward the Ireland of the technological expert rather than, as he saw it, the Ireland of the Shan Van Vogt, he may have forgotten that there was and is an alternative. The factory smoke need not necessarily black out the four green fields, and Kathleen, strong and confident in her own culture and traditions, should have more rather than less the walk of a queen. However, on the question of the fourth green field, historians may yet agree that Lamas the pragmatist did achieve something, particularly in the initiative he took in meeting the Northern Premier, Captain Terence O'Neill, in 1965. His realistic attitude to the problems of partition had, of course, found expression much earlier. Within months of becoming Taoiseach in 1959, he accepted an invitation to speak at the Oxford Union. We recognise, however, that the the fears of Northern Ireland Protestants still exist and that it's unlikely that they could be removed by assurances of good intentions no matter how sincere or how authoritatively these intentions might be expressed. An arrangement uh, which would give them effective power to protect themselves, particularly in matters relating to education and religion, must clearly be an essential part of any ultimate arrangement. It was arising out of that consideration that this question of Irish reunification should be considered on the basis of an arrangement under which the Parliament and the Government of Northern Ireland would continue to function with our present powers while an all-Ireland parliament would exercise the powers in relation to that area now exercised at Westminster. That proposal, which of course presupposes that there would be adequate safeguards for the ordinary rights of the nationalist population of that area, that proposal seems eminently practicable and should effectively dispose of any apprehensions the Northern Ireland Protestant population may feel about the, the consequences 
of reunification, the, the consequences that they see most to fear. What other assurances or safeguards do they require? And in that matter, we'd go very far indeed, as far as any reasonable person could consider to be necessary uh, to meet them. Now, as I've said, some of the economic handicaps of partition could no doubt be minimized and some perhaps completely removed by the growth of a practical system of cooperation between the two areas, even in advance of a political arrangement. Such cooperation, as you've been told, has already been achieved to some extent in particular matters relating to transport, to electricity, uh, and to fisheries. I've repeatedly indicated our willingness to extend cooperation of that kind. But what I have said in that regard has unfortunately not yet met with the, an encouraging response from the spokesman of the Northern Ireland government. Perhaps that's because they fear that the evidence of the practical value of combined action might lead in time to a growing recognition of the artificial uh, nature of the existing political situation. I have never disguised my hope that economic cooperation between us would eventually bring about that result. But quite apart from any views that one may hold about the eventual reunification of Ireland, is it not plain common sense that the two existing political communities in our small island should seek every opportunity of working together in practical matters for our mutual and our common benefit. Today, the whole trend of world opinion is towards cooperation and combined effort in trade and economic uh, development generally. The point is, however, that an arrangement to facilitate an expansion of trade between the two areas would, as matters now stand, would require the concurrence of the British government, which controls the import regime of Northern Ireland. It would, I believe, remove the reluctance in Belfast to think constructively about it if the British government would indicate their willingness to facilitate such an arrangement. We, for our part, are ready to enter into trade talks forthwith. It would take too long here this evening to spell out, to attempt to spell out on a sector-by-sector on a -sector basis how the reunification of Ireland, or at least effective economic cooperation between the two parts of Ireland, would benefit the development of the whole island as well as open new trade prospects for Britain. The assertion that it would uh, do so may be contested. I can see that. But very few will deny that it's not at least worthy of detailed examination because of the conditions which have prevailed that examination has never been made. It was in fact towards the end of his time as Taoiseach that the surprise meetings between Lemass and O'Neill came about. Looking back in November 1970 to his policy on the partition question, 
Mr. Lamas claimed that it was within the Fianna Fáil tradition, but was different in emphasis to the policy pursued by Mr. de Valera. This is true. I came to the conclusion that the idea that we could end partition by pressure of any sort was fallacious. Either pressure of military force or political pressure or economic pressure or international pressure. This was only consolidating the opposition to the Irish unity in the north and uh, was going to achieve nothing. And that we had to accept the idea that partition would only end when agreement to end partition was achieved with the people who are now opposed to it in the north. And as a first step to getting this agreement, or anyway discussions which could lead to agreement, it was necessary to improve the community relations situation in the north so that a, a rational political situation could develop so that reasonable political debate could take place without starting riots. Uh, and this was the base of my thinking, my approach to the partition problem. Do you, did you feel that you, you would have some difficulties in persuading all the Fianna Fáil party to join you on, on that? No, I didn't find this. Uh, see, the idea that force could end partition had been rejected, not merely by Fianna Fáil, but rejected by the whole Republican movement before Fianna Fáil was founded at all. Uh, after, after the uh, treaty debate in the Dáil in 1922, the, or the, the, uh, there was a, a resolution passed there unanimously by all parties, both pro-treaty and anti-treaty, declaring themselves that in favour of the unity of Ireland, but accepting that this could not be achieved by force and repudiating the idea of force. So that we were, this traditional republican approach to the, to the ending of partition was never really questioned in Fianna Fáil. And, uh, now, there were undoubtedly people who felt that you could force uh, some more rational approach to matters of the North by economic pressure, that was the origin of the Belfast boycott in that period. By international pressure, this is the basis of the demand for actions of the League to the United Nations. Or by political pressure of any sort, which uh, is, is no doubt explains the idea of putting the onus in the British government or something. I, I don't believe we can end partition by any form of pressure. I don't believe, and this is one of the reasons why that offer of Irish unity after the war, which was made in the by, by in Churchill's government, didn't, was not realistic in my view. It, it, it wasn't the situation to end partition didn't exist, and the British government couldn't bring it about. And uh, indeed, many times I was horrified in visits to the North to find that a lot of the nationalist view there. Uh, could very uh, shortly be described as uh, anticipation of the day when they'd have their foot on the orange neck and be pushing the orange man's face into the gutter, uh, when they'd be getting their own back for all the injustices and things that they suffered in the past. Uh, and I felt uh, we, we couldn't get anywhere until this approach to the whole situation, this deep inter-community rivalry in the North, was modified or eliminated altogether. Do you see a, un a united Ireland? Now, I see this happening sometime. I see it'll take a long time before we get a, 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 a political situation in the North which will enable the possibility to be discussed in a rational way. Uh, and the process of education is no doubt taking place. To, and I say taking place perhaps even more rapidly than people assume because uh, certainly amongst the younger people in Queen's University and things of that kind, there's a much different approach to these issues than amongst the old, older uh, uh, hardliners. Uh, but if we have to assume no change in the world situation, this can be done in the long term.
What sort of Ireland would it be? I mean, how would you think our whole political culture would change with oh, the North End? See, one of the arguments against force and solution partition is that you would almost have, if you had a, a resentful minority up there who would be constantly in a state of rebellion, it would have to be repressed by police action. Uh, I think this would destroy the whole morale of the country, the spiritual life of the country. I think the real effects would be, would be felt all over. I wouldn't love this. I, 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 even if we had force enough to do it, I think this would be disastrous to ourselves to use it. Uh, I should think that the actual change would not be as considerable as you have in mind, assuming that we got unity by agreement. The, the, fundamentally, these are Irishmen. They may have been told they're not our princes or West Britons or some sort of hybrid Irishman, but fundamentally they're Irish. And uh, it is, I think, noticeable that in the context of negotiations for entering the common market, there's a growing realisation in the North that the only people in Brussels who will be arguing for things that are advantageous in them are the Irish government. Uh, and uh, already one begins to see signs of what happening now, what did happen, certainly happen in 1932, of the various trade associations, the two areas, getting together to discuss their situation in the light of common market membership recognising this community of interest, recognising that if anything is going to protect these interests, only the Irish government will, will take that step. Then do you have some regrets that, that, that some of the policies pursued in the last 50 years down here have been policies which, which couldn't really encompass the, the 32 counties? This is true. Mind you, I, I was involved in them. I, when the Belfast boycott started in 1922 or I was in charge of it. I, I didn't think of those times. I felt only that this was... a situation which shouldn't be tolerated and that whatever measures we could take to end it should be brought about. It took me a long time to realise that we were on the wrong track altogether and that in fact we were consolidating partition rather than rather than helping it. I mean, at the first time I began to doubt about the effect of the policy was when on some occasion enforcing the boycott I had to look up a map of Ireland to see whether a town, a particular town in which goods were made on which side the border was. I was to realise I was identifying the border eh, which other people had not begun to do at that stage at all. The leader who brings about the unity of the Irish nation will have some claim to the title of statesman. We have not yet seen him. But we do see the monuments to Sean Lamass all around us, not least in the new realism on the matter of unity between North and South, in the state-sponsored bodies Aer Lingus, Irish Shipping, CIE, Kolochukra Aaron, Board Namona, Board Banya and the rest, in the smoke of factory chimneys with which, as Eddie McAteer once remarked, Lamass replaced the mist on the bog in the improved living conditions of the great majority of our people. And it was all done without undue histrionics or flag-waving. Oh, but he had a very deep sense, deep sense of, uh, of republicanism, just the same. Uh, I mean, he didn't go in, as you say, for, for uh, flag-waving. He didn't believe in that. Uh, that was a waste of time. But he, he liked the old band and the, and the early days, in those our early meeting days, public meeting days, when we'd speak three and four, maybe five times in the one night, all over the constituency, you know. He liked the pipes playing and he, he, he loved the, the torches, the old turf, the turf and paraffin oil torches. They say, Brass the bands. Guy. Yeah, he, he he certainly liked the brass band, but uh, <laughs> he liked the Suffering Ducks, the, the band called the Suffering Ducks, actually the original Suffering Ducks, I don't mind what Brendan Bean or anybody else said, but they were the Protestant Row people from Camden Street. We used to the Suffering Ducks in the early days, and I knew them from the time I was a little boy. They, uh, 
they had our place at the back of Cole's pub. And the pubs opened at 2 o'clock on a Sunday and they'd hit off about half past 11 and they'd do a circuit for about an hour and a half and they'd come blithely up gorgeously then playing for all the more worth on their way to their billet. (laughs) (laughs) Just on the stroke of two, of course. (laughs) But they were, many a time he'd say, well, you better get the suffering dogs, he'd say. (laughs) (laughs) And the suffering ducks were, in a way, the fulfilment of a prophecy Lamas made when he was interned in Ballykinler camp in 1920-21. At a time when his prospects, political or otherwise, were virtually non-existent, he could look optimistically to the future and write in a book kept by the internees, I'd safely bet that I'd go home yet with a brass band playing before me. <laughs>